Welcome to the Legacy of John Williams podcast. I'm your host, Maurizio Caschetto, and this is a new installment of LA Studio Legends. My guest today is legendary trumpeteer Tim Morrison. Tim Morrison is one of the most celebrated and talented trumpet players of his generation. From 1987 to 1997, he has been associate principal trumpet of the Boston Symphony Orchestra and principal trumpet of the Boston Pops. His beautiful, warm sound was immediately noticed by John Williams who then was music director of the Pops. In 1989, Williams asked Morrison to be soloist on the score for the Oliver Stone film Born on the 4th of July. moment onward, Tim Morrison became the trumpet soloist in many other John Williams projects, including JFK, Nixon, Amistad and the Centennial Olympic Games theme Summon the Heroes. In 1997, Tim left the Boston Symphony and moved to Los Angeles to start his career as a studio musician, performing in hundreds of film and television recordings. He played in the trumpet section of virtually all John Williams scores recorded in LA until 2011. He was also featured soloist in famous film scores by other composers, including Apollo 13 by James Horner. In this conversation, Tim talks about his musical life and his many projects with John Williams, including his experiences as a member of the Boston Pops and his solo work for Born on the 4th of July, JFK and Saving Private Ryan. He also talks about the transition from being a classical player to a studio musician and his solo recording project called After Hours.
I'm very glad to introduce today as a guest of the Legacy of John Williams podcast, Timothy Morrison. Thank you, Tim, for being here with us today. Well, thank you for having me, Maurizio. It's great to talk with you. And joining us is also, again, uh, one of the best friends of the Legacy of John Williams from United Kingdom, Tim Burden. Thank you for being here today with me, Tim. Great pleasure. Lovely to be here to chat about this, uh, you know, wonderful marriage of music. As I always do with all my guests, the, I like to, you know, to kick off the conversation with uh, musical background information. So how and when did you start to learn music and did you grow up in a musical household? So how did you get uh, into music? Well, I grew up in rural Eastern Oregon and uh, my dad was my junior high school band director and he started me out actually on the French horn. And uh, I remember him telling me, son, you have to have a really good ear to play the French horn. Um, <laughs> but what I knew he really needed was just another horn player to make <clears throat> a grand total of two in the band. So I played the French horn my first year and about a thousand offbeats later, I quickly realized that if I wanted to play the melody, I better make my way into the trumpet section. So I switched to trumpet a year later and continued playing trumpet through my junior into my senior high school years. But, you know, I really didn't practice the trumpet. I, I took it out of the case for the rehearsal and put it back in afterward. And, you know, I was really more interested in athletics than music at that point. But I played in the concert band, the stage band, and, you know, played in the pit orchestra for the musicals we did, that sort of thing. But it was really my junior year in high school that I made a decision to really take trumpet playing seriously and started taking trumpet lessons with Fred Sauter, who was the principal trumpet of the Oregon Symphony at the time. You know, Fred was a great teacher for me and, and really got me into a systematic routine of practicing. And, and uh, you know, I was really ready for that. So I, I practiced like a, a fiend for my last two years in high school. And saw a big improvement in my playing. So that was a great self-motivating factor. And I ended up winning the Oregon State solo competition my junior and senior year. Anyway, uh, at some point my senior year, uh, Fred called Gunther Schuler, who was the president of the New England Conservatory at the time, and told him he had a student they should hear. So they came out to Oregon on their national audition tour, and I played for them and was accepted into NEC in 1974. Now, you know, going from Portland to Boston was a, a huge culture shock for me. I mean, other than, than playing in the ensembles in high school, I really had no experience as an orchestral player, and I really didn't know, you know, anything about that world. Uh, my teacher had me learn a few orchestral excerpts and a few solos, but other than the Oregon Youth Symphony, which I didn't play in, there really wasn't much of an orchestral culture for high school students in Oregon, so I was as green as they get going into the conservatory, and the next four years would be a, a huge learning experience for me. Um, you know, my, my first year at NEC, there were a lot of upper-class trumpet students, so it took a couple of years before I even played in the orchestra, but I became good friends and I'm still good friends to this day with a guy a year ahead of me. Uh, his name's Doug Morton, who was a, a terrific trumpet player and was very well schooled in orchestral playing. 
uh, went to the Interlochen Academy, you know, knew all the rep and all the players in the orchestras, etc. He took me under his wing and taught me everything he knew. You know, we played duets, excerpts together and we were roommates, did a lot of listening to recordings, primarily Chicago Symphony from the Reiner Schulte years. We played a couple of years in the scholarship brass quintet together with three other great musicians and, and just had the greatest time playing together. I mean, we, we just had to talk so little about the music and would just sit down and play and, and, and the music would just happen. Uh, it was really a very special experience. And looking back on those four years at NEC, I'd say that experience was probably the most formative for me as a musician. Uh, my teachers were Armando Gatala and Roger Boisin, who were both legendary principal players for the Boston Symphony. Uh, Gatala was my, my primary teacher who I studied with for three years. And, you know, he assigned me a lot of etudes and transposition and seemed primarily interested in making sure that, that I could read. And I think first and foremost, but as great of, of a musician as he was, he, he really, you know, he didn't talk much about making music per se. He just, I think he just wanted to help me develop my toolbox, so to speak. And if, if I had musical instincts, uh, you know, that would come out on its own. Anyway, after graduating from the conservatory, I ended, I ended up taking an audition for a job in, in Toluca, Mexico, in the orchestra of the state of Mexico. And, and you know, that, that turned out to be one of the best decisions I could have made. Uh, that orchestra, which was surprisingly good, by the way, did a lot of concerts and, and covered a lot of repertoire. So it was exactly the kind of experience I needed, really. I mean, you know, 50% of the orchestra was American, which was predominantly all the wind and brass players. And it was a great experience for me that, that really set me up for my first job in the Boston Symphony, which I auditioned for in, in 1980. Um, that was a section job. And I, I basically played second trumpet in both the, the BSO and the POTS for the next four years. Uh, in 84, I left the orchestra to play with the Empire Brass until 1987, when I came back to the BSO as the associate principal and principal of the POPs. And this is essentially when my relationship with John really got started. Um, you know, being his principal player really gave him an opportunity to get a good feel for my playing and, and that began what would be the whole John Williams episode of my career.
before uh, jumping into your uh, collaborations with John, I want to ask you about that. Given your studies and also your your background since at that point, do you think there is a specifically American way of playing the trumpet as opposed to the you know the, the classical European tradition, and and how much of that, according to you, is influenced by you know the environment of the concert bands that in America is so so big and important, and also jazz music. So how much uh, do you think there is an American way of playing trumpet? Well, you know that's an interesting question. Uh, I never thought about it in terms of an American way of playing per se. You know, but it's it's true there are cultural influences in all instrumental playing. You know, you, you have the British brass players that tend to have this quivering vibrato because of the style of the British brass band tradition. I'm not sure where that came from, but it's it's certainly an immediately recognizable feature of, of how so many of the British players play. Not really sure one could characterize a European style of playing in, in one broad brushstroke necessarily. I mean, it varies from country to country and the influences of the specific teachers and traditions of each place. I mean, as far as an American sound is concerned, you know, John made this comment in an interview after we did Born on the Fourth of July that I had an American sound. And uh, when, when you think about what is, I think generally associated with Americans or, or the American spirit, uh, I think the characterization is generally considered to be open, freely expressive, maybe even bold, you, you know, as a people. And then of course there's the old adage, America, land of the free and home of the brave, for example. I don't know, somehow I think this might've had something to do with John's characterization of an American sound. I, I don't know. You guys might have a different take on that. What do you think he meant by an American sound? Actually, I was thinking about that because I think, that of course, there's jazz music. After Armstrong came on the scene, probably every trumpeteer after him has a certain mindset, I guess. And so maybe even by osmosis, one can get you know influenced by, by a certain attitude at, at playing, even when playing classical. Of course, mm -hmm. and and the other thing that made me to ask you this question was a recent comment from from John Williams, when he, when he was talking about his experience uh, in Vienna conducting the Vienna Philharmonic, he told that he was concerned at the beginning about the sound of the trumpets in Vienna because there are there are different kind of trumpets you know there are the rotaries, uh, yeah. rotary valves yes so and they had a darker sound and they have a different character. In the end, I th he said that he was very happy and at how the the sound uh, came up, but uh, but actually it is different in a way. Uh, well, you know, there there's always been this uh, characterization of of the rotary trumpet having a, a darker sound than the piston trumpet, uh, but you know, <laughs> I beg to differ at that characterization. I mean, uh, some of the recordings or performances I've heard with with rotary trumpet being used are actually quite bright and brilliant, really. You know, Hans Gonsch, the, the great Vienna Philharmonic principal player, uh, he was in Japan uh, playing Bozek with, a, with an opera orchestra in Japan with, with all the, the players in the section using piston trumpets except for him. You know, and I was out in the audience listening to this and I really, uh, I really didn't hear any discernible difference or it wasn't like 
he was picking out because he was playing the rotary trumpet versus versus all the piston trumpets. So, you know, I think this whole issue of it being darker than than the piston trumpet is is a little confusing to me, as I, I you know I don't really hear the the difference between the two is indiscernible to me as as a listener. I mean, I think John might have been concerned that the sound would be too covered or. You know, the plane might not be bright and, and defined enough for his music, but I guess he found out differently when he heard how brilliant and, and crisply articulated they can be played. I think, um, you know, whenever, if, if we're thinking about that kind of quintessential American sound, I think a lot of it's to do, obviously, definitely with intonation, but it's also, it's that, you know, that, that kind of singing vibrato and, and it's also there's a kind of warmth which of course your playing is famous for and rich and i have spoken about this over the years many times you know if we use an example like uh amistad's long road to justice you know about 50 seconds in there's this wonderful kind of slur you know in a beautiful kind of almost a little, like a lilting slur which and, and that's quintessential i mean this is like john adams this is what a, a legendary american story and that's where i think you have that kind of special I mean, I think that's what Joel Williams means. American sound or not, uh, in, in the final analysis, a, a player's sound ultimately comes down to a, a very personal expression of each individual. And, and in my case, it was a, a singing lyricism that became, you know, my, my calling card as a trumpet player and, and is the aspect of my playing that I will most likely be remembered for. When you returned in Boston in 1987 and became associate principal for the BSO and principal for the Pops, uh, at that point, John was very much in command of the orchestra, of course, of the group, and was really enjoying and maturing both as a composer and conductor. So how did you see him changing in a way? Because did you play with him also 
at, at when he started? Yes, my uh, my first year in the orchestra was was John's first year as music director in in 1980. Uh, I was playing second trumpet at that time, so I may have been somewhat unnoticed by him during those first four years. But I remember hearing that John was a, a bit reluctant to accept the offer to be the pops conductor and and that he might have even felt a bit intimidated at the prospect. Uh, you know, I, I seem to recall it, it might have had a little to do with maybe some uncertainty he may have felt about his conducting ability. But uh, I think the bigger issue for him was the, the commitment of time and energy it would take you know, and how that would fit into, you know, what was already an insanely busy schedule for him. I think it's pretty safe to say, you know, that we're all very happy he did accept the challenge of being the music director of the Pops and, you know, and his connection to film and his vast experience as a musician himself contributed to what were some very monumental years in, in the Pops history. Are there any highlights from that period that stuck in your mind or maybe in some concerts or some recordings also that you did? Well, I'd have to say, uh, you know, both William Spielberg collaboration albums were great fun. Of course, uh, there's some in the heroes for obvious reasons. Uh, but the capper has to be, uh, for me, music for stage and screen on which I played excerpts from Born on the Fourth of July, as well as uh, Copeland's Quiet City. I think one of the best ones, whenever you were saying that Williams first started to notice you, I, I would, you know, put a guess, it would be the, the Salute to Hollywood album, which came out on Phillips, and that was 1988. And there's some incredible solos from you there. Obviously, there's La Bamba, <laughs> which is lots of fun. But there's a fantastic tribute to Judy Garland, and that's definitely your sound, you know, shining through there during that, um, I think it was a, like a medley, um, a tribute to Judy Garland. 
And there was also William Vaughan's arrangement of Hooray for Hollywood. Yes. Which is this lovely bright sound. And I would say, and I'm sure Richard will agree, I would say that album would, would be a highlight that made William sit up and notice, you know, this guy he needs to do more films, you know. Well, you know, it's interesting to hear you say that, Tim. You know, I've, I've largely forgotten about that recording, but, uh, you know, hearing you say that makes me uh, want to go back and refresh my memory. Yeah, the, the Sony classical ones, I think that contract with Sony, it was more beneficial for everyone. Sony classical and that contract, was like an embarrassment of riches. So many fantastic. Yeah, those uh, those Sony classical records we did were really great sounding records. I think uh, you know John had brought out his Hollywood recording engineer Sean Murphy to record those albums, and he you know he did a remarkable job of capturing a wonderful sonic representation of the orchestra. <laughs> was talking about uh, that period because it was right before 1989 when John asked you to be soloist on the score for Oliver Stone's Born on the 4th of July and that was I guess a game changer for you for your career uh, I mean it's of course such a beautiful score and your playing is so prominently featured but also very important in the character of the music itself and it appears from the very beginning of the movie and it accompanies uh, the audience up until the end so um what do you remember of that experience uh, how did you react when john told you that you were given that solo part well i must admit i was uh, completely taken by surprise with the whole thing uh, you know I, i remember it was during an, an intermission of a pops concert that that john called me into his room and and mentioned that he was scoring a film that was rather difficult to watch at times, he said, about the Vietnam War and, and specifically Ron Kovic's story. And then he was writing some trumpet solos for the film uh, that he wanted me to play. So <laughs> needless to say, I walked out of the room feeling like uh, the cat that ate the canary and, and uh, was really looking forward to what that experience would be like.
did you see any of the music in advance? I mean, how, how that worked out? I mean, did John told you specifically uh, the style of that he needed for the film? Oh, sure. I, I knew what I was going to play ahead of time, but uh, I, I don't think I heard the orchestra accompaniment until the first run through in L.A. You know, Maurizio, as far as, as input from John regarding interpretation, I mean, we, we never really had any conversations about how to interpret anything, really. I mean, you know, when you, when you hear the character of the line you're playing and, and the orchestral context for it, you know, it's, it's just kind of baked in uh, how to render it. You know, I, I feel that way about everything I've, I've done for John and everyone else I've played solos for, really. I think you were like the sound, metaphorically, of Von Kovic as a boy, weren't you? I think you were emphasizing his youth. Uh, I mean, I, that's what, kind of, would you agree? Well, I'm not exactly sure what you mean about metaphorically representing his youth, Tim. There are solos that uh, accompany scenes from his youth. And then I remember that scene, you know, of course, where he comes back from the war and he's, he's in the wheelchair and he's uh, going to visit his, his girlfriend from high school. And, you know, it's a very tender scene where, you know, I've got this lyrical trumpet solo and, and, you know, and, and then other scenes from his childhood, I think, that are accompanied by the trumpet, uh, by certain trumpet solos. So there's that. And then there's, you know, this, this haunting theme that opens the movie that is repeated throughout the film that, you know, underscores the tragedy of, of the war experience. And, and for him, you know, his, his loss of innocence, uh, not to mention the irreparable physical and emotional effects it had on him. After the success of 4th of July, which was also nominated for an Academy Award in 1989, uh, John started to explore more using soloists in his film scores. And in 1991, you um, were asked again to, to join him to perform uh, the trumpet solo in another Oliver Stone film uh, called JFK, which again was another big success and very popular and that solo, the, the theme from JFK, became really an iconic solo, probably another example of the American sound that we were talking about. Uh, so how, how did you feel when John again asked you to record the JFK solo? <laughs> well, again, it was a, another big moment for me. And uh, what can I say? You know, another chance to take a swing, at, uh, as you say, has become a you know, very epic and... and uh, iconic piece of writing for the trumpet in film. I found it an amazing movie and it was really a, an honor to, you know, in a sense, sort of usher the 
the audience into it, I guess you could say. I mean, it's it's part of the repertoire now. I mean, every trumpeter in the world that wants to play that. Oh yes, and uh, many have. Just check out YouTube. And I, I I saw a video when you were touring with John with the orchestra and the orchestra in Japan. Yeah, we did three different concerts on that tour. Uh, all three were programs of just John's music. Uh, it was really an incredible tour. We we did Fourth uh, of July on one of those concerts and. Also did Born on the Fourth for another program, so uh, I definitely had my hands full on that trip, to say the least. JFK was uh, the, another school that put you on the map, not just for you know for John Williams admirers and listeners like like us, but but also to other composers who said, "Hmm, I want that sound in my <laughs> film score too." So from that moment onward, it seems like other top film composers wanted to to have you as their uh, you know soloist. And I mean, I'm of course I'm referencing to the brilliant uh, score for Apollo 13 by James Horner, which, of course, is another great um, highlight of your career, I think. Oh, there's no question uh, what I did for John captured the attention of other composers. Um, as you mentioned, there was uh, Horner for Apollo 13. I also did some solo bits for James Newton Howard, Hans Zimmer. Did a couple of nice solos for Mark Eichen for his movie about Bobby Kennedy's presidential campaign and, and assassination. And then there was a score of Stanley Clark, uh, the famous jazz bassist, did for a movie called Panther about the Black Panther's rise and decline. And that solo was very reminiscent of the JFK solo, uh, certainly in the same spirit. And talking about Apollo 13, 
I mean, it's another case where the trumpet solo opens the movie, so you were given a huge spotlight at the beginning of the film. But you have also other very nice solos throughout the, the school. Uh, well, the opening of Apollo 13 was, was definitely a spotlight solo. Uh, but the difference in this particular score and overall experience was these were solos within the first trumpet part throughout the score. So I, I wasn't a, you know, a separated soloist like I had been for most other films I was featured on. I was in the trumpet section for the entire film. And uh, however, they did use a solo mic for me on, on some of the solo passages. Uh, but anyway, it was a great score, a lot of fun doing it. And, and James wrote just beautifully for the trumpet. And also John, or again, uh, called you to to have a a solo in the third in the Oliver Stone trilogy, uh, uh, Nixon, that you had a beautiful kind of uh, 19th century folklore uh, Americana style. Yeah, that that solo was a bit of a departure from uh, any other solo I did of John's, both stylistically and har harmonically as well. It, uh, it definitely takes some interesting twists and turns that are uh, that are both surprising and, and very catchy, I think. Uh, the title of that cue was called Growing Up in Whittier, which was Nixon's hometown, so it perhaps played the equivalent role for Nixon that some of the solos I did for Born on the Fourth did for Ron Kovic.
with Nixon, yeah, I mean, completing that, you know, there's, uh, that's actually, because you, you might be interested to hear this, that um, Philip Cobb, who, who now is principal trumpet with the BBC Symphony Orchestra. Yeah, I know, Phil. He used to be, you know, Philip, yeah, but actually, he, whenever he first heard that cue, that was one of the, you know, one of the reasons, like, um, he, he started playing the trumpet. Uh, I mean, I don't know whether, he, I don't know whether he's ever talked about <laughs> this, but it's one of his, uh, one of his favorites. I mean, because he, was the successor of Morris Murphy with the LSO, you probably know. Wow, uh, that, that's really flattering to hear, Tim, especially coming from him. Uh, you know, I'm a big fan of Phil's and admire his playing a great deal. So hearing that this had that much of an impact on him is, is really nice to know. You know, I saw a comment he made on my Facebook music page for that solo, but uh, aside from some very kind and complimentary words, you know, he made no reference to the, the personal impact it had on him and his decision to play the trumpet. Anyway, you know, thanks for sharing that with me. I, I really appreciate it. Another thing that John said about you is that there is a real serenity in your playing. And I mean, it's a very <laughs> apt word, I think, because oh, yeah. that probably sums up beautifully the, the way you bring also character to the piece that is in front of you. Well, I'm far from serene, but I'm glad that comes out in my body. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to get in touch with that part of myself a little more often. Though, you know? <laughs> it's in there somewhere, I guess. <laughs> no, because I'm thinking also about uh, the 1996 theme for the Centennial Olympic Games, uh, Summon the Heroes for the, mm -hmm. the, for the Atlanta Games in 96. And that's, I mean, that's an, I mean, an incredible piece because it, it starts with this huge fanfare. With, I mean, I don't know how many trumpets there are in that piece. And then it comes your solo. What do you remember about that specific uh, recording? Well, Summon the Heroes was the first piece we did for that record. And needless to say, uh, it, you know, it was hitting the ground running full steam. You know, it was, a, you know, it was an incredible uh, moment for me, of course. You know, the fact that John had written this, um, this fanfare and it, it, this, this, this epic trumpet solo and had written it for me and it dedicated the piece uh, to me. You know, that record was an absolute bloodbath. I mean, you know, what one piece after another was so brass heavy and, and really challenging. 
Uh, I mean, there was not only some in the heroes, but we did, you know, the bugler's dream from the, the 84 Olympics and uh, parade of the charioteers from Ben Hur, Shostakovich Festival Overture and on and on. I mean, you know, that, that album was absolutely a chop buster for every session. But, but did you also play the, the, the crazy trumpet parts that comes after the solo? <laughs> yeah, I, I played everything from uh, top to bottom. Uh, probably shouldn't have played the, the whole beginning fan for before playing that solo, but, you know, it turned out okay. I yeah. mean, you know, <laughs> that's just me as a 65-year-old looking back on it. Uh, But anyway, yeah, that was uh, definitely some wild and, and technical writing for the trumpets in that piece. that probably John re-recorded some of the stuff of the, of the theme in LA for the NBC coverage for the subsequent Olympic Games, I think. Also wrote some variations on the theme and something like that. It's stuff that it's never been released uh, officially, but I know for a fact that he re-recorded, you know, uh, bumpers and shortened versions of stuff like that for the TV coverage. Mm -hmm. uh, sure, he does, uh, he does that for all the Olympic themes he writes. Uh, as you say, they do bumpers. Uh, they do intro and outro bits for commercial breaks and ads, etc. Uh, we also did a redo of the NBC News theme. And I, I'm not really sure why we were redoing it. I mean, I thought, I thought the original sounded pretty good as it was. But um, I think they re were redoing it uh, because of some NBC News anniversary or something like that. Uh, uh, anyway, you know, Malcolm sure sounds great on that recording, doesn't he? Yeah, I mean, he, he, he always enjoyed playing alongside him, you know, such, such a great player. Yes, I saw a video on YouTube where you are featured as a soloist on the piece. Yes, there was this one cue with a with a nice little unexpected trumpet solo. Uh, that totally caught me off guard. I, I didn't know I was going to play that solo until I got to the studio that day. He had me come up in front of the orchestra and play it, too. I don't know if they ever used that for anything, but it was a, you know, another JW trumpet moment. Yes, and mm. I'd love to hear the full piece because in the YouTube video it's just a, a small snippet and then say, like, ah, I want to hear the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs>
actually, I want to ask you, in 1997, when you left the BSO and went to Los Angeles to start, you know, the new phase of your musical life at that point, mm-hmm. uh, so playing as a studio musician for, for the greats, how instrumental was your experience with John in that choice of your career? Did he inspire you in some way to go in that direction by any chance? Well, without my connection to John and, and the work uh, we had done previous to my coming to L.A., I never would have moved to L.A. nor really had the opportunity to, to do so. You know, I, I, I had a talk with John about leaving the BSO and and moving to L.A., and, and he told me if I was going to do that, I better do it sooner than later. Uh, I mean, he, he saw the handwriting on the wall and was well aware of the fact that you know, more and more work was being done outside of LA. So I, I do feel fortunate that I got in on what were still some pretty active times for the studio scene. But you know, one of the more important people that I spoke with, uh, in addition to John about moving out to LA was, you know, talking with, with Sandy DeCrescent uh, before making that decision. And um, I, I called Sandy and, and told her what I was thinking of doing. And well, Sandy was the you know, predominant a film score contractor at the time. So, you know, someone doesn't make a living on on uh, doing John Williams uh, movies alone. So, you know, it was pretty important to get a, a green light from her uh, before making that decision. And, and that's exactly what I did get after talking with her. You know, she told me that she would do everything she could for me and she did that. So, yeah, it was really important that I, that I get that from her before making the, the the decision to leave the orchestra and move out there. Whenever we think about Saving Private Ryan, which was just like a year after you left um, the Boston Symphony, mm-hmm. was that, you know, playing with Thomas Rolfs, was that, was that an easy kind of, I mean, I take it it was all good terms you left, or was it kind of a bit weird? <laughs> well, uh, no, you know, it, it really wasn't awkward at all. In fact, it, you know, it, it felt like kind of a, a homecoming of sorts. Um, you know, it was a pleasure to come back and play with Tom and, and all my former colleagues. Uh, we had a great time doing Saving Private Ryan and doing it in Symphony Hall in that magnificent acoustic made it all the more enjoyable. Uh, it was really unique recording a score in, in one of the world's great concert halls.
Again, it's you. You were pro uh, giving the the American voice in a way, but this time perhaps was was much more mournful and somber. Uh, so, uh, how different it was? I mean, did John tell you to to play differently this time around because of the, of the nature of the score or something like that? Well, as I said earlier, Maurizio, uh, you know, John really never suggested that I play anything in any particular manner. I mean. Again, uh, you know, as I may have said earlier, the, the, the musical context and, you know, the overall subject matter of the film and, and the tone of it, you know, offered all the information needed for, you know, how to interpret the plane. I mean, I'm sure that's also the case with anyone John has written solos for, you know, as I said before, the interpretive element is always baked into the music, so to speak. There is thus some beautiful dialogue between the trumpets. I mean, so the duets, it's like they are having a dialogue. really brings forth uh, the, the nature of, of the film itself because most of the film doesn't have music. I mean, there is very little music overall. Music is really reserved in very few spots, maybe for, for longer stretches than, than usual. Yeah, that's maybe right. Maybe six, seven minutes longer cues, but then there are for 30, 40 minutes, you, you don't hear any music at all. And when a music comes in, it's always to offer more a commentary than an accompaniment if you know what I mean. Yeah, you're right, Maurizio. There, there were long stretches of film unaccompanied by any scoring, like you know that opening scene on on Normandy Beach, for instance. Uh, I suspect uh, you know they felt the the naked realism and, and the horror of that experience uh, couldn't have been served in any appropriate way by by scoring it. You know they were very selective in the moments they chose to score and and. Uh, the moments that they did score were certainly very effective and moving. Yeah, I think sonically speaking, it's that you know that the brass chorus 
of you know the opening credits and then him to the fall and that brass chorus is like it's a total benchmark when when you when you're all playing at once it's incredible sound And I think Symphony Hall really adds to that, doesn't it? I mean, in- oh yes, very much so. I mean, it's uh, you know it's considered to be one of the the top concert halls in the world, and and it provided a wonderful sonic backdrop for the film. Uh, when you listen to the soundtrack, you get this incredible sense of space and warmth uh, of sound that that hall provides, and and then you have the Tanglewood Festival Chorus positioned out into the mid- out in the middle of the hall to uh, maximize the use of that ambience. Uh, yeah, it was uh, truly extraordinary. years, I mean, from 97 to 2011, until you played in the studio orchestras, and you did so many projects with John, but also you joined him in some special projects like the E.T. 20th anniversary live to film concert, Mm -hmm. uh, and also the American Journey album, I think you were on their sessions too, right? Uh, Yes, we did the uh, E.T. anniversary concert in the Shriners Auditorium of all places. Uh, we also did a scoring session for the theme of PBS's great performances in Royce Hall at, at, at UCLA, which was also a departure from, you know, the usual studio recording sessions. The American Journey album was a, yeah, that was a great album, a very virtuosic and brilliant score for the trumpet, as I recall. Uh, one of the more technically challenging sessions we'd ever done for John. Uh, the piece was apparently commissioned by Bill Clinton, of all people, to accompany a, a multimedia presentation called The Unfinished Journey, which 
was directed by Steven Spielberg for the 2000 Millennium celebrations. Uh, yeah, it was a, a terrific album, and the music was certainly another great example of, of John's compositional genius. Is there something you particularly feel proud in terms of challenges that John presented to you as a musician in all those years? Well, you know, I mentioned earlier that Born on the Fourth of July was so special because of the great solo writing and it being my first L.A. studio recording experience. Uh, some of the heroes would have to be right up there for obvious reasons. Uh, the music for stage and screen album we talked about earlier would be right up there in that list. But when I look back on all the film work and, and Pops recordings we did together, I, I just feel good about the whole body of work we did and what a wonderful collaboration it was for so many years. It encompassed the best years of my playing career and, and all we've done together will certainly be the lion's share of any lasting legacy of my trumpet playing. I love how the sentimental moment you cited there was thankfully captured on film that really uh, quite cool promo video that was shot at the time. So it's somehow fitting that that was actually captured like that because very few moments uh, are captured like that. Do you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, that was, I think that was actually done for MTV at the time. Yes, I think so. Yes. Well, one of the very first times, I think, that something like a score, uh, an excerpt from from an orchestral score got aired on MTV. Yeah, it was being <laughs> promoted in that fashion. And it, it was really cool that they did it in black and white like that. And It's a very classy video. It's very effective, I think. I'd love to ask you about uh, some of the things you did after you quit your life as a studio musician in Los Angeles. Uh, especially, I want to ask you about uh, the solo recording project you did 
called After Hours, a beautiful album featuring lots of jazz standards uh, performed by you on solo trumpet. So can you tell me about how that project came about? Well, you know, I, I owe a huge debt of gratitude to my friend and, and fellow trumpet player, Dave Norman, for making this uh, project happen. Uh, Dave and I went to, to NEC together. Uh, you know, we were sitting around talking one evening and he asked me, uh, you know, why I had never done a solo record. And I told him that I really had no interest in doing a classical trumpet record and but that I knew of a record that he did, which was in a similar vein to After Hours, you know, easy listening, jazz standards kind of a thing. And, and I mentioned I'd be interested in doing a similar record. So we started talking about a playlist and, and pretty quickly came up with uh, the 10 tunes that ended up on the record. Uh, then Dave got right on it and contacted all these incredible players on the record, which is kind of a who's who list of, of LA jazz musicians. And before I knew it, we were bringing these guys in to lay down their tracks in a you know very cool little shoebox of a studio called the Knickknack Sound. And uh, you know I wanted to give a big shout out to my recording engineer, Nick Tancrater, for the wonderful job he did putting it all together. I, I think he did a really masterful job and, and was very happy with, with how it all came out. It was, I felt it was a very appropriate record for me to do, being that I've, you know, I've always had this appreciation for jazz and, and my dad being a, a jazz musician himself, I don't think I mentioned that he played the jazz saxophone and clarinet. And, you know, I, I happened to dedicate the album to him too, by the way. Um, you know, it offered me an opportunity to express the, the jazz side of my musical personality and you know, along with that, the, the lyric trumpet playing that I identify so much with. started recording this album I, you know I thought the flugelhorn was going to be the instrument of choice but as it turned out I I ended up using a C cornet for 90% of the record uh, uh, also using a C trumpet for the concierto de Aranjuez and a, and a B flat trumpet on summertime the cornet I don't know just seemed to offer the right sound for most of this record uh, you know it's mellow but it, it just sounded a bit more focused and, and fitting for this recording and in this particular recording environment. And how difficult is it uh, to give a uh, you know, fresh spin on, on standard tunes and classic, uh, classic tunes? How difficult that is? I mean, Well, I feel the only pieces that had any fresh spin on them, per se, were Concierto de Arnues in Summertime. I mean, everything else was pretty straight ahead. 
at least structurally speaking, and, and rendered in a fairly traditional jazz style and format. Uh, I, I came up with these particular renditions of, of Concierto in Summertime and, and you know, really loved how they turned out. Uh, you know, but the, the, you know, the really amazing thing about doing these tunes in particular, but you know, really all the tunes in general on the record, was having these musicians come in and, and just giving them the overall concept, uh, groove, and, and feel for for a particular tune, and and hearing them just start in playing this incredible stuff, you know, without any music in some cases, uh, you know, just knowing the tune and the changes, you know, I'd be singing the melody to give them an idea of what I would be doing, and they just would kind of instantly get it and just. You know, it was really incredible to do, to witness such intuitive and skillful musicianship. I mean, you know, these guys are consummate pros, and and I was really so lucky to have all of them on this recording. <laughs> I think it's a beautiful recording actually I was listening to it right today right before we, we started our meeting and I was really really loving it it's a standard tune so it's tune we all know and love but they are they have a really nice rounded and very comfortable feeling you know I don't know how to put it well I'm very pleased to hear you say that Maurizio thank you for that you know in doing this album, I wanted it to have a soothing and relaxing effect on the listener, and I wanted it to be an album that one would feel compelled to revisit and listen to repeatedly over time. But did you ever try to to tackle John's trumpet concerto? Uh, yeah, I did. I, I played it one time with the Rotterdam Philharmonic, uh, not too long after he wrote it, I think, uh, and played the first two movements with the piano for... Uh, a Yamaha Brass Wind Festival in Japan in, in early 2000, I believe. Um, you know, I talked with John about the possibility of recording the piece, and he seemed, he seemed both open to the idea, but a, a little reticent at the time, oddly enough. Uh, he, he mentioned to me he wasn't convinced it, it was a very good piece of music, and, uh, you know, that's pretty much how it was left. Uh, and, you know, the idea was never revisited, really. Uh, so I think the only two recordings are Arturo Sandoval's with the LSO and, and the recent recording Tom Hooten did with a studio orchestra here in L.A. with, with John conducting. 
you know, I have to hand it to Tom for, for, for making that happen. I mean, it was his idea to, to record it here at, at Sony Studios, which happens to be John's favorite room and, and did a, a very successful fundraising campaign to, you know, pay for the room and all the musicians. And, and you know, he sounded wonderful on it and the orchestra sounded really amazing as well. So um, I don't know. I think it's a very effective piece and, and certainly a great addition to the contemporary trumpet literature. Absolutely. Mm. Yes. And it seems yeah. like it refers mostly to his private side in a way, and it doesn't have any specific association uh, in terms of what the audience expects as well. You know, he, right. he, he is really he can be free to roam and go in any direction he wants. Well, you know, it must be an incredible challenge to compose anything, you know, let alone a, an instrumental concerto. Uh, you know, all I can say is that it's a good thing I wasn't a composer. I mean, I, I never would have finished anything. I mean, to arrive at a point where you, where you feel completely satisfied with, with what you've composed, you know, it, it seems almost unfathomable to me. Uh, when you have so many choices and directions, you could go on at any point in time, you know. I'm sure John labors over his writing incessantly. You know, he, he's so meticulous and, and such a perfectionist. Uh, I just imagine that's how it is with him. Yeah, yeah. He seems also very private in in terms of uh, he doesn't like to explain a lot in his creative process in the sense mm -hmm. when I saw him uh, talking or reading interviews and things like that, He's, he's very articulate about uh, talking about his process, but he probably has a, a kind of a, a secret garden. And that, that is the place where he goes when he has to go deep somewhere, you know, and, and, and then come up with something beautiful that he, he seems like only him is able to find. Well, that's why I find the, the concerti he's written so interesting. Uh, you know, we're all used to hearing John's film scores or, or ceremonial music where he's writing to something or for a specific occasion. And even though he's writing his concerti for specific people's playing, you know, he, he still left to come up with something, as you said, that, you know, is more personal and, and reflective of John's more private persona and, and something that seems to me shows, I think, uh, you know, his more academic and intellectual side. Malcolm mentioned to you in his interview was how prepared John always is and it's it's so true that he has everything thoroughly worked out before he begins recording anything he does I mean he never makes any changes and the, the sessions always run so smoothly and right on time uh, he's uh, you know he's a consummate pro and and we've all been blessed to have had the opportunity to record his music for all these years in addition to your studio work with John Williams uh, I'd love to ask you about uh, a score that you did with James Horner, um, Deep Impact. Was that you 
playing in that score as well? Uh, yeah, I did play on Deep Impact, but uh, Dave Washburn was the, the principal trumpet on that score. He's a beautiful player that James had used uh, as his principal player for most of his scores after Apollo 13, uh, including Titanic, Zorro, and, and many others. There was a lot of antiphonal solo writing for Deep Impact, you know, where, where Dave would play a line and then I would play a similar response to it. Uh, James had a set up with, with two trumpets on opposite sides of the orchestra and, you know, wrote some beautiful lines for the trumpet, as he did the French horns as well, who were also similarly set up. Uh, Dave has some nice solo moments in that score as well. And, you know, he and I have very similar sounds so, and, and lyric styles of playing, so I think it's uh, sometimes difficult to tell us apart. In the end credits of Deep Impact, there's, there's some really gorgeous trumpet and also the French horn coming in. It's absolutely golden stuff. How important for you is now to to give back to younger people, to young musicians, as a in your activity as a teacher? How important is that for you now? Uh, well, you know, teaching is a very important part of every professional musician's life. I feel. I mean, it's it's really important and ultimately very gratifying to to pass on everything we have to offer to the next generation of players, and it's. You know, it's really our calling to do so. Uh, I taught at Boston at the New England Conservatory, at Boston Conservatory and, and Boston University while I was in the, the symphony. And I loved my relationship with all my students and am proud of how many of them went on to, you know, forge their own careers in music. I have had a very special relationship with the students in Japan who I've been working with for decades. Uh, that's been quite the love affair for me since my first time there in 1980. And, and I don't know, I kind of lost track, but you know, I've been there somewhere between 80 and 90 times since then. Uh, you know, the kids there are just awesome and, and they have such a, a reverence for the sensei in that culture. You know, plus the playing level over there is just completely off the charts nowadays. I mean, they've really become one of the top places in the world for excellence in all instrumental playing. And it's, I mean, it's, it's really astounding, even at the elementary school level. Um, 
if you haven't done so, you should listen to some of the YouTube videos of the bands over there. I mean, it'll absolutely blow your mind at how good they are. I just want to ask you one very final thing. What do you think will be John's legacy in the future as a musician, as a composer, as a, um, an artist? Uh, I think John's legacy will be that he is arguably the, the greatest film score composer of all time. Now, some people might take issue with that. And of course, it's a bit risky to call out one composer as the greatest. But I think if you were to take a poll of musicians and avid film score aficionados, I, I would wager that John would be at the top of most people's list. At any rate, uh, he's obviously beloved the world over and his music not only served to make the movies he scored for that much better, but really stand alone as, as great concert music in its own right. You know, I, I feel very honored and, and lucky to have been at the right place at the, and at the right time and to have been a, a participant in so many of his iconic film scores and compositions. Guys, really, I want to thank you very much. It was a very beautiful conversation, Tim. Well, it's been a pleasure talking with uh, both of you, Maurizio and Tim, and I, I really uh, appreciate the opportunity to have uh, been able to do this. And, and Maurizio, I really appreciate the fact that you're doing this whole uh, project. I, I think it's going to be uh, a great resource, and I think a lot of people are going to really enjoy it. It's wonderful because I know a lot of your kind of ethos is, you know, projecting to the audience, you know, beyond the orchestra. And, and, and I think, um, you know, we as, as music and film lovers have a lot to be thankful for, you know, so I think it's important to stay there. So all the best to both of you. Take care. Bye bye. Thanks to Tim Morrison for his time and generosity. Visit thelegacyofjohnwilliams.com for more interviews and articles. Thank you for listening until the next episode of The Legacy of John Williams podcast.